Well, good morning. It's good to see you here today. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for your kind welcome. And uh, it, is, uh, it is true. Uh, John and I have uh, had many experiences uh, together over the years that neither time or discretion will allow us to share. <laughs> we used to play church league basketball together. Do I have to say anything else? But uh, it is a, man, it is so good to serve, to be here with John today and with you. And uh, with P- Perry, we had seminary classes together back in the day. And I'm sure we all, we both made A's and everything that we took and everything. So it is really, it's just the goodness of God to be with you here today. Uh, I'm going to invite you to turn uh, to the book of Hebrews, the sixth chapter, and while you're turning there and finding your place. Uh, let me tell you of a, just a recent very serious situation in my house not too long ago. Uh, it involved decorating. And uh, so maybe a word of explanation. When it comes to decorating in our house, uh, we, uh, there, there, we have great role clarity in our family at this point. Uh, and uh, my wife, Brenda, who would have been here with me today, but unfortunately took a tumble on Friday, and so she's not uh, very uh, mobile today. Um, and, but Brenda's role, is, it's very clear, her role, anything involving decorating, is, is Brenda's role, job, is to stand there and look very intently at this item, whatever it happens to be, look very intently at it, study it, talk to herself about it, and um, and then my job is to stand there quietly. <laughs> That's my job. And so we were doing this recently. And uh, but unfortunately, I got out of my lane. I'm standing there, and I just said, "Well, you know, I think it maybe needs some blue in it." Turns out. We do not need blue. <laughs> blue is problematic. We're in our bedroom, and that's where we were, blue is problematic. And you want to know why blue is problematic? Because all decorating items that are blue tend to be kind of nautical in theme or beachy, I think was my wife's actual term, beachy or nautical. And so that eliminated all a couple of other ideas of mine that were somewhat nautical in nature, you know, like the, uh, you know, the singing fish that you put on the wall that turns and looks at you whenever at a certain point, you know, maybe, uh, maybe a ship wheel like you would have seen on the SS Minnow back in the day, or possibly an anchor. Well, none of those things are going to wind up on the wall of our bedroom, but an anchor is in our text this morning, so I can talk further with you about that, all right, and still remain in my lane. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, I'm going to read down through verse 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise. 
For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, your word, as we have heard it this morning, both read and sung, your word is life to us. So, Lord, we ask now that you will come and bring new life to our minds, to our lives, to our souls. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Well, let's think a little bit this morning about this idea of, G, of the anchor uh, of our souls. And um, typically when you think of this idea of an anchor, you, you, we, we sometimes think that the times in which we live require something like an anchor for our lives. We usually, in fact, we have, a, we have an old hymn that we used to sing in times like these. We need an anchor. And so we typically, when we think about this idea of being anchored, we look to circumstances. And surely over the last couple of years, we would say, boy, you know, we really need an anchor. And we, and we kind of focus all of our application of that and relate it to circumstances. And that is true. But we need an anchor. Not just the circumstances. It's not just that the circumstances are chaotic and therefore an anchor is required. No, we need, we need an anchor. We're the reason why. Let me just real quickly, before we get in further into our text, let me just tell you what I mean by that. Um, there is something hardwired into all of us, this desire for something solid in our lives, an anchor in our lives, something to build our lives around. It's, um, it's, it's, it's hardwired into us, in, into our very creation, the way God created this. But the problem is, is that we look in this world for such a thing, and there's, and there's no anchor to be found. We look for things of this world to which we can solidify our lives, build our lives around. And we want this because we were created by someone, someone, capital S, whom we can, we, we we were created by someone like that who is an anchor. And on some level, we want to be back in connection with that person 
But this instinct gets derailed by our sin. It gets derailed by this, by the gravitational pull, downward pull of our fallen natures. And so what happens is we seek an anchor, but we do it in, in insecure things. We do it in things that uh, the Scripture refers to as idols. Isaiah talks about the craftsmen, the making of idols, and then trying to make them secure. You nail them down. You try and make them secure, these idols. And, and we, use our, we use idols to find this security in our life. And when I'm talking about idols, I mean things like um, approval. Approval of other people is an idol that many people live for. Uh, we, might, we might say comfort. Sometimes an idol, the idol of comfort, we, want, we, just, we just want a, a life that is comfortable. Sometimes it's control is the idol that we want to secure. We just want our life to be completely in control and we try and organize our life and we work out a lot and we just want this discipline in our lives and, and, and it's really, it's an idol that we're clinging to. Sometimes it's power. We want success. We want influence. We want that kind of uh, you know, just capacity over, over people. And, um, and so we seek an idol, excuse me, we seek an anchor in those kinds of things. But what I want to say to you today out of God's Word, I want a real simple outline. I want, to, I want us to see that there are two things that are true in relation to this idea of an anchor, two things that are true. And then, based on that, two things that we have to do. Okay? Pretty simple. Two things that are true. Two things that, as a result, you and I need to do. So let's look, at the t- first of all, at the two things that are true. And, and let me just say this about an, a, an anchor. An anchor needs to have two things that are true about it. First of all, an anchor, for it to really be an anchor, it needs to be somewhere where you're not. Correct? It has to be somewhere where you're not. If the anchor, okay, growing up, we, we used to go water skiing. We had a boat. My dad had an anchor in the boat. And if you're looked down and the anchor is right by your foot, it's not doing you much good. The anchor has to be somewhere where you're not, correct? And then the second thing that we would say is that an anchor, for it to be effective and helpful, you, you have to be connected to it. My dad would never let me toss the anchor in from the boat because he was not convinced that I would hang on to the end of it, to the rope, so that, you know, that it, would, that it would actually tie the boat down. So two things about an anchor. First one is, is that an anchor has to be somewhere where you're not. And then the second thing is, is that an anchor has to be connected to you. So there's two things in our our text that kind of uh, represent those. And so the first one, let's look at the first one. An anchor has to be somewhere where you're not. And that anchor that I'm talking about there is Jesus Christ in heaven. Look uh, in verse 19. It says that uh, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. 
And of course, this is Old Testament imagery related to the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelled in the tabernacle behind the curtain, behind the veil. And that is where Jesus is. It says, verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And and, and this idea of Jesus being in heaven is really runs through the book of Hebrews as a whole. In chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. The heavens there is the skies. He's passed through the skies, and now he is in the very presence of God. We see in chapter 8, verse 1, Now the point in which we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And then chapter 9, verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. The, the, the writer of Hebrews is taking great pains to help us understand where Jesus is right now. And that becomes an anchor for us. And like I said, our tendency is we look for anchors in this world. And the problem is, is that this world is constantly changing. Um, an ancient Roman philosopher by the name of Heraclitus said that there is nothing permanent but change. And then he went on to use this little analogy of how a man steps into the river. He steps back out. But by the time he can step in a second time, everything has changed. He says, not only has the river changed, but the man has changed. Well, that's, that's true of everything in this world. Everything in this world is changing. We're changing. We know that. Um, and so to try and find an anchor for our souls in this world is just irrational. Um, and, and so the, the writer of, of Hebrews tells us here that we have as a sure anchor of the soul a hope. So it's a hope that is our anchor. And, and hope is not, uh, the Bible doesn't use the word as we use it, as wishful thinking. I hope it doesn't rain today because we were going to go outside. Or I, I, I hope I do well on that exam, which is all just wishful thinking. It's not how the Bible uses hope. The Bible uses hope in this sense. What we trust to save us now because it will last till the end. Hope is really just faith kind of for broadcast toward the future. And, and so the, the first thing that is true, the, the, the anchor is where we are not. In other words, Jesus Christ is in heaven. He is our anchor, not approval. Listen, if you, if you try to anchor your life around approval, you, you can't please all the people all the time. You can't please all the people some of the time, and some of the people you can never please. 
But if you live your life, and by the way, all of those idols in the end will betray you. In the end, they will betray you. You can live for them. But in the end, when you really need them, they won't be there. And so, Jesus in heaven, this is our secure hope. It's where we are not. It's not of this world. It's in the world to come. So the second thing is, is that an anchor has to be connected to you, okay? It has to be somewhere else than where you are, but it has to be connected to you. And this connection is found in our text in the fact that God took an oath in regards to us. Verse 13 and 14, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, I surely, I will bless you and multiply you. God didn't have to swear by anything else. He just said, I'll do it. And I will surely do it. Um, You know, there's an old saying that says, it's not the, you know, sometimes people take oaths. Oh, I promise to do this. It's not the oath that makes us believe the man. It's the man that makes us believe the oath. Correct? It's not the fact that somebody takes an oath. Oh, sure. But you know this person. And you go, I'm going to count on that. That God, that God is swearing by himself. And, and, so, and so, he, so that, that commitment of him to us, um, the Bible uses this word called covenant. Um, verse 17 in our text said, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God over and over again entered into covenant with his people. He, he, he said, this is my promise to you. This is what I will, this is what I will do. And what's interesting to me about verse 17 is there is God desired to show this. Of course, he told it to us, but God desired to show it. And I think the best place where we see God's showing us his commitment to us is in Genesis chapter 15. And what we find in Genesis chapter 15 is is God is continuing to work with Abraham. Abraham's referenced in our text here. And so God is continuing to work with Abraham and he gives him this picture of, of, of the, the, the stars and the, 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 this represent your, uh, your descendants, Abraham. And, um, and then it comes down, we come to verse 15 and down towards verses 5 and 6. These are, so your offspring shall be. And it says that Abraham believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham simply took God at his word. And God credited it to him, counted it to him as righteousness. That's New Testament theology right there. That's, that's our status as believers. But then as we continue, what we, what we find there is Abraham both had doubts about himself. He'd say, Lord, I mean, I'm childless. 
But then his doubts also would related to, uh, to God. He said, um, he said, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Down in, in, in verse 8. And so God does something very interesting there. And uh, essentially what God does there is he enters into this covenant with Abraham. And he says to Abraham, he says, go get these animals. And by the way, Abraham knew exactly what to do. Abram, at this point, Abram knew exactly what to do. Because this was very common in this time. Uh, In our time, when we want to enter into a solid relationship with someone, we sign a contract. It's written. But in the ancient world... You entered into a covenant, and a covenant was acted out. It was dramatic. You could see it. You saw the covenant. God is trying to show us his commitment to us. So we look back to Genesis chapter 15, and we see this covenant. And by the way, there were two types of covenants in the ancient world. There would be what was called parity covenants, a parity a parity covenant was between two equals. John and I might enter into a covenant, okay? It would have been a parity covenant. But there were other kinds of covenants that were called um, suzerain vassal. Really, that was just a covenant between unequals, between a greater person with a lesser person. And a king would enter into a covenant with his subjects. And it's the second type of covenant that God enters into with Abram. And we, we read over there in Genesis chapter 15, down in verse 17, that on verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. But what, but, but what happens, all what happens before that is a description of that covenant. And so here's what's happened. Abraham went to get the animals. He sacrificed them and he placed them facing one another. In other words, what he did, Abram created an aisle. We understand an aisle, don't we? Okay. We talk about walking the aisle. So he lined up all of these animals. And the way this worked was this was that when you would enter into a covenant, you would pass between the pieces. Let's say it that way. You pass between the pieces. And in so doing, that was your way of saying, may this happen to me if I break my word. I'm passing between these pieces. May I be cut off like these animals that have been sacrificed. Um. And so when you read there in Genesis 15, you find this interesting account of darkness falling upon Abram, a deep darkness. And then in the darkness, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passes between the pieces. You go, what in the world? When you go back and look at Exodus 19, 18, fire and smoke were signs of God's presence. So in Genesis 15, when the fire, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch passed between the pieces, 
That's God. And here's what's so unbelievable about this. Normally, when a king would enter into a covenant with his subjects, he wouldn't walk between the pieces. He's the king. He doesn't. He, he's really just being gracious by entering into this covenant with you. Occasionally, you would find a really good king, and a good king would walk between the pieces with the subject. But every biblical scholar will tell you that what is done here is unprecedented. God walks between the pieces by himself. Abram doesn't walk through. What is the point, you say? The point is this. God is saying, not only do I promise to bear the judgment if I fail you, which is impossible. He's saying, but I will also bear the judgment if you fail me. And friends, that is what happened at Calvary. Jesus bore the judgment of my failures and yours. And that is the new covenant. And that is the covenant in which we believe and it is counted to us for righteousness. That, the anchor, that is how we're connected to the anchor, our hope in Jesus is that God has swore an oath to us that he will not forsake us even when we prove to be unworthy of that covenant. So the two things that are true are that Jesus is in heaven and that God makes an unconditional covenant with us. So, two things that are true, so what? Now what? What should we do as a result of that? Well, the text, we, the, we, we don't even have to look, we don't have to come up with our own application of this text. It's right there for us in verse 18. The first thing that we're told there is that says that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. So the first thing is we take strong encouragement from these things that are true, that Jesus is in heaven, that God has committed himself to us without reservation. Uh, That word encouragement is an interesting word. It's a word paraclesis. Sometimes when you hear it translated as the paraclete, it's really a hybrid word. It's a hard, soft word or a soft, hard word. I'm not sure exactly. But, but the two parts of the word, one part of it is a very kind of a soft. It's the word para, which means to come alongside, to be in someone's presence. Okay? And that's, that's good. Someone walking with you. But the second part of the word, klesis, Cleat is a word 
that means to call, to call out to, with a loud voice. It's a, it's a, it's a strong word. It's a hard word. Okay? It's like you, I'm sure none of you ever do this, but it's like yelling at your dog. It's a hard word, okay? So there's the soft part of it coming alongside, but there's also the stern part that says, listen, you need to hear this. Um, Jesus uses this word, same word that's used in our text, in John 16 of the Holy Spirit's work. When it says that the Holy Spirit, he says, I will send you, depends on your translation, I will send you a helper. Some translations say. Some translations say, I will send you, some say a comforter. I think there's actually a few translations that say, I will send you a counselor. A counselor. Uh, Sometimes people ask other people, they go, are you in counseling? You know, every follower of Jesus is in counseling. Every follower of Jesus, because every follower of Jesus has the Holy Spirit, our counselor, our comforter, our helper. But this word, encouragement, that God gives to us that we take, we, we don't create it, we take it, we receive it. It's not just soothing, it's not just coming along somebody and going, there, 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 there. And it's not just telling somebody what to do. Hey, do this. It's both of these things. Coming alongside and working the truth in to somebody's life so that they both understand it and are affected by it. You know, there's a lot of things that we understand that we know that don't necessarily affect us. There's some times where we have some affections, but they're not grounded in what we already know to be true. Jesus, in John 16, said to the disciples, says, I'm going to send you. The Holy Spirit is going to come. It's expedient that I go away, that the Holy Spirit will come. He will glorify me. The word glorify is a word that has the idea of weightiness. He is going to come and help you to understand the weightiness. He's going to take that which is mine, of me, things of me, and declare them to you. So this encouragement is, it's not just the soothing, it's the information, but they're coming together in a way that it profoundly impacts you. The disciples to whom Jesus was speaking there, they had the truth, but they just didn't get it. They, they understood. They had heard these things just like we've heard them. We've heard them all our lives. In other words, these things weren't real to them. And what I want to say to you today is that the spiritual reality is a big problem among the people of God. We have this knowledge. We have this information. We can list all of the attributes of God, but it, but it doesn't, it's not real to us. 
Um, we believe in heaven. We believe in heaven. We believe there's a place called heaven. And yet, it's not real enough to us that we live fearless lives. Because most of us don't live fearless lives. Most of us are not willing to put it all on the line for the gospel. But we believe in heaven. Most of us do not live radically generous lives. But we say we believe in heaven. Maybe it's just not real to us. And God has sent the Holy Spirit to make these things real to us that we would be encouraged to live fearless lives, to live generous lives. We say we believe in the love of God. But if someone slights us, if someone criticizes us, if someone says something about us, then we get mad or we get despondent. But if, I, if the love of God was real to me, it really wouldn't matter if somebody slighted me. We say that we believe in the wisdom of God, that God attends to all things. But yet we get anxious. Why would we be anxious if the wisdom of God was real to us? The Holy Spirit, this encouragement that's offered to us is that the Holy Spirit takes the things of God and makes them real to us. If Jesus is our anchor, then then it should be real to us. The Holy Spirit is trying to make it real to us. So take strong encouragement. And then the last thing that we must do is hold fast to the hope. We see this throughout the book of Hebrews, holding fast. This is Old Testament language. A good summary of this is found in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 20, where God says, Moses says, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. So this idea of holding fast to the Lord is equated with loving him. Loving him. That's the reason why God walked in between the pieces in Genesis 15. Was to so move upon our hearts. Does that not move your heart when you think, listen, I should have been. Every, you know what? Every religion in the world says, you walk between the pieces. Every religion in the world says, you do what's right. And if you do what's right, then maybe you'll be okay. But the gospel says, God does it. And, doesn't, and that's all with the intention of crushing our hearts so that our overflow from our hearts is just grateful adoration. When we're talking about love, we're not talking about the feels. When we say what we love is what's at the center of our heart. What we, your, 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 people use the idea of feelings as a synonymous with the heart. No, your feelings come out of your heart. Your heart is the very core of your being, what you love, what you hold up, what you want to build everything on. 
like an anchor. And so giving ourselves to God in this kind of way, it's what we were made for. It's what we were made for. It doesn't matter what's going on around us. We were made to give ourselves. It's an anchor for the soul. A hope that we can hold fast to in love. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me for a moment. What's the anchor of your life? What's the one thing you can't live without? Honestly, there's been times where I had to admit to myself what I, what I live for is approval that other people will say he's a good guy. There's been times where I've had to f- say to myself, really, Brett, what you really live for is comfort. Because what God has done for you is not real to your soul. So today the invitation is to say the anchor of my life is Jesus in heaven. The anchor of my life is God entering into covenant with me. And that encourages me. It makes it real. It becomes real to me. And so I hold fast because I love the Lord. He is at the center of everything. As the Holy Spirit moves upon your life, we'll have a moment of time of response. You do what the Lord asks you to do. Thank you, Lord, for a chance today to hear your word to worship with your people. Holy Spirit, come. Make the things that we talk about real in the depths of our soul. In Jesus' name, amen.